Why don't we start, everyone? I know we're early, but, you know, it's hardly ever a bad thing. Um, good to see everyone again. It's kind of the, the class that is a skipping stone, uh, where it started off with a lot of momentum and then been off for two weeks, uh, kind of just around my summer schedule being, being here and gone. And then we're into Revelation 21, which is a huge shift in the scripture. I was thinking about it this morning. Probably not up there within the beginning, uh, which uh, you know is a pretty good opening line. But um, Revelation 21 has as as an abrupt of a shift as any part of the scripture, I think. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth is how it's going to start. And there's this, we couldn't be more we couldn't infuse that or impregnate it with any more drama. Than, uh, uh, than humanly possible because it's beyond human and we're going to get this glimpse into the way things end um, and it's really a big deal and it's also really, really great news. Um, so that's where we're headed but before see um, but before we go there I thought we'd back up just a hair and look at the painting by William Blake that we didn't get to, that I didn't get to last time a couple of weeks ago. Um, so before we get to the new heaven and the new earth we're going to look at the end of the old, uh, the last judgment, with this really complicated, fluid uh, 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 painting by, um, by William Blake. And then uh, we'll look at a lot of Narnia today. I thought um, C.S. Lewis approaches this as well as anybody, especially in his children's uh, story. Um, and as he said, any story, any children's story that's worth reading is worth reading by children and adults both. And I think he's right. Um, at least the last battle carries that, and then we'll, uh, we'll engage the text a good bit too, and we'll go up to where we can and then finish in three weeks with the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22. So with that, let me pray. Gracious Father, thank you for this day, for your word, um, that we would know the end of your word and allow that to change the beginning of us. Um, allow that word to do its work, uh, to call us um, by name, and to, uh, to change us, Lord, allow this living word to do its work on us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, as I mentioned, let's, uh, let's just climb in. Um, and if anybody has a, a Bible, you can um, uh, let me turn the lights off. This is a painting by William Blake. Uh, it's a big painting, um, and I've got a lot of details. Um, this is just to give you some sense of its complexity. Uh, the, the original is even larger than this. I think it's seven feet by five feet. Um, uh, probably somewhere in England. Actually, it's lost. Um, this is a reproduction of it, I believe. Uh, but the, the last judgment, this is the end of, uh, of, of all things when the last enemy death is destroyed and Satan has been thrown down into the, uh, into the pit and bound. William Blake wanted to capture some of this fluidity, this glimpse into the other world of, of, uh, of all things. And so we have, I'll just point out some features and we'll go through this, this motion. Um, is it focused? Can y'all see that? Is it focused? Do y'all see? Um, no, that's the wrong one. Let's see if we can get any more clarity. Um, this motion, this is the damnation of the wicked and the uh, the ascension, uh, the resurrection of the righteous. Um, 
where all of this, the fluidity of, of where is heaven, where is earth, what's underground, of course, is all lost. But there's definitely a motion that's always present in this. There's nothing that's static. Uh, we've got um, Adam and Eve here. This is, of course, Christ on his throne with everything emanating from him. These are all sort of small little children's heads, the idea that Christ being the firstborn of all creation and the fount of all things new, where the infants, of course, are, are symbolic of everything that's new. The four um, trumpets being blown, we get that especially from, from a, uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, where we get the idea that at a trumpet sound, that's going to be what calls everything to an end. And so the trumpets, um, that's what we looked at last time as well with the... Um, uh, the tuba mirum from uh, uh, from whose mass? Uh, I'm totally blocking. Um, not Vivaldi, but Verdi. Giuseppe Verdi's um, Requiem Mass, where the the tuba mirum, some of the loudest music ever written, because he had it for two full orchestras, and just said, you know, turn it all the way up and just blow it out the choirs as well as the orchestra. And so we try to do that with this idea that uh, when that trumpet blows all things are going to suddenly turn on their end. And this fluidity, this complex fluidity captures some of that. Where, look at, at some details just to kind of draw us in. Here's, of course, Christ at the throne. You can see sort of all things emanating, these little children that are coming out. Um, we've got scenes of, of, a, of a baptism as well as, as, a, as the Eucharist, the idea of, of redemption um, uh, sort of, uh, finally and fully consummated here at the uh, the end of time, the tabernacle with the, uh, the the seven lampstands and all that, all the revelation imagery really gets kind of caught up into this. And you can see this is Adam and Eve standing before the throne. The the ones who brought um, sin into the world are finally um, there at the uh, the last day, being redeemed along with the rest. Um, Let's see, just kind of moving around. Make any comments you want. Trying to come down to the place of the trumpets over here on the side. This is going to be the representative of the church. Um, uh, an old representation of a woman standing on the sun, on the moon, excuse me, with, with the stars around her head that the church is being redeemed. Over here on the right um, is going to be Satan going down into the, to the bottom. The whore of Babylon that we looked at with the beast with ten heads. You can see just all, he just puts it all in here. and really just wants to capture it to bring the reality of, of, a, of, our, um, of our end. That this world is not ours, that our lives are not our own, um, that there are things going on which we have no uh, conscious awareness of. That things are moving towards an end, and that's going to be important here in Revelation 21, where Christ comes out and makes the declaration, it is done. Um, the purposes for which, uh, in the beginning, all things were created are now being called to its final and full consummation. Um, it is done. The book of life over here, which is being read, so that all the, the resurrection of, a, of all the elect are coming up with the 12 elders on each side, uh, calling it so. Just wanted to give some place to where we see the uh, uh, one visual depiction of of, uh, of Revelation, where we spent the last three weeks, and going to spend the next two, including today, to see this all come together. Now that Christ has appeared, 
once finally and fully for the second advent, once he's come again, um, as Paul says in Philippians, make no mistake, um, the whole sort of jewel song, what if God became one of us, would I recognize him on the bus, and what would it be like? You know, it's fun to think about, but that's not, that's not the way the Bible describes it. When he comes again, um, there will be no mistaking. He's not going to come and just sort of come down and sort of say, yeah, let me just go check in on everything. So like George Burns or whatever else. All those are really old. I don't know if there's anything newer. Um, just to kind of sort of check things out, and you wonder, what if I was sitting next to God and I didn't know it? You know, it's kind of fun to talk about, I guess, if you're having coffee, but that's not the biblical answer. When Christ comes again, when God comes again, um, all creation will stop. Time as we know it will end. Kronos will stop because he's the Lord over that as well. And, uh, and as Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The rocks will cry out. All creation, which has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, will immediately and fully recognize the creator and Lord of all. And things, this fluidity, this complex fluidity, things will, from that point forward, be wholly different, wholly new. New as in new kind, um, not just um, sort of recycled. And that's where we're going today. A new heaven and a new earth. That's a weird phrase. A new heaven. Even heaven is going to be renewed. And so we'll look at that in just a moment. So I wanted to pick us up a little bit. We didn't get to look at this. Um, pick us up a little bit from where we were last time to kind of give us some sort of emotional bridge, some emotional connection to, uh, to where we're coming into today, which is the, uh, the thunderclap, which I think is um, the first six or seven verses in Revelation 21. It's um, uh, personally a text that I, I go to frequently, especially when, when I'm confronted um, abruptly by a, by a death. Some of the most comforting, consoling words for me personally. So, uh, but any thoughts on this? Before I turn the lights back on and we plow into to the text. I think it's interesting that on the right hand side, it looks like there's cavity, mm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. It, it looks like it, it won't stand, whereas this looks like it will. It's got some solidness yeah. to it. Yeah, it's a great point, Rita. That's right. That's right. So you got the sheep and the goats kind of thing going. So that's right. So. Yeah, and the cavities certainly lend the spatial part of descent. You're going down. Um, with the, the orange with the different color, the darker feel, it's heavier. It's in the minor key, so to speak. Um, complicated. Difficult to tell, you know, what are the created beings, um, because this isn't hell, per se. Um, this is now uh, the place where the Lord is still Lord, um, and he is, is, is Lord of, of all this as well. He's the one who's bound the, uh, the, the beast with ten heads and the, and the great, you know, the harlot, the prostitute. Um, I mean, he's the Lord of this, uh, of this final um, pit as well. Uh, but there is definitely the feeling of dissent. Complicated trying to put into a visual um, apprehension uh, things which are you know, beyond us completely. The whole question of how do you make the abstract concrete or infinite finite uh, 
where all things and all manner of things uh, can somehow be apprehended. I'll keep that verb on the table. It's a good verb. So with that, uh, if you have a Bible, I think there's a Kratom out somewhere. Um, uh, near, yeah, thanks, Martin. If you want to pass some out, you can grab one. Um, pretty easy to find these. Go to the end of the book and then turn back a couple of pages and you'll find our, our text, Revelation 21. Um, as I like to do, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and read it. Um, I know it's hard to hear Scripture sometimes, especially in big chunks, but, but I like it. Uh, I think Scripture, which does speak on its own, then it has a chance to uh, uh, begin to sink in, just to get the cadence and the rhythm. So after we um, read it, then we'll we'll go back through and pick it apart and, and quickly pick up some, some Narnia as well to, uh, to help us out here. But Revelation 21, um, right on the heels of, of William Blake uh, and the, uh, the Last Judgment, where death, the last enemy, uh, has been defeated and Satan, um, somewhat anticlimactically, as we saw, was bound, where Christ didn't even do it himself. You know, this puts to rest any idea, sort of, you know, what's called dualism. You know, for people my age, the greatest example of dualism is Star Wars, like good versus evil, and they're sort of co-equal powers, and you're kind of rooting for the good to win and the bad to lose. Not not anything like uh, the Bible. It has a, uh, a, a, a absolute clear statement that um, Jesus Christ is Lord, that the powers of, of darkness and evil, uh, uh, he is Lord over them as well, so much so that there's not this sort of dramatic battle, the last battle, you know, C.S. Lewis's book isn't sort of, you know, Aslan fighting Tash or the devil, and they're sort of duking it out, and it goes to 15 rounds, and you're kind of hoping that maybe Rocky's going to, mean, it's nothing like that. Uh, he just sends an angel, an unnamed angel, and says, okay, now it's time. Go bind Satan and throw him into the pit. And it's just done. It's just done. It's just that simple. It's a half verse is the end of evil. That's the the Lord of Lords and King of Kings um, where he is, is dominant over that. So with that somewhat anticlimactic end, which doesn't do anything to diminish the pain, the suffering, the despair, the alienation, the loneliness, it does contextualize it. It places it properly in a in a word for those of us who are left in this present darkness um, in suffering. Uh, we now have this great word of hope. Revelation 21. Then I, the Apostle John, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, 
I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, uh, I'm sorry, and then came, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God and having the glory of God, its radiance was like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed and on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are all equal. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate. I'm going to get some of these wrong, by the way. The fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for, its, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it to the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone else who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The word of the Lord. Thoughts? A lot here. City made with gold, the streets paved with gold, the pearly gates are in here. Um, the place where there is no more crying, nor tears, nor hunger, nor thirst. Um, as we'll see at the beginning of Revelation 22, the tree of life, which we saw in, in, in Genesis um, 2, comes back into play. And out of the throne proceeds the living water, which of course is Jesus himself. And we see that fulfillment. Um, we get an, an echo of that here with the water that that, uh, uh, that that satisfies finally and forever. But any thoughts, interactions with the uh, with the text before we kind of break it down?
Yeah. Yeah, especially for an artist. So, and, you know, class with me would probably not be complete without a U2 reference. You know, I want to run, I want to hide, I want to tear down the walls, I want to reach out and touch the flame where the streets have no name. The flame is the Lamb of God. The flame is the light, for there is no need of a sun or a moon or anything else, for Christ himself is the light, the Lamb. I want to reach out and touch the flame. This is the place where the streets have no name. There is no, uh, there's no denomination. There's no nomin. There's no, there's no name. There's no law. There's nothing that demarks anything else. For what is the essential character of the new heaven? It's nearness of God. I'm going to preach here for a minute. It's nearness of God and not separateness. For the heaven that we have now, we think of as a separate. You know, the people that I've lost, that you've lost, who have died, and they're not near to us right now. They're, they're there. And we're here. That's the old heaven. And that's good. It's good for them. It's hard for us because we can't, we can't be with them. Um, we don't know them. We can't, uh, we're not with God in the sense that they are. The new heaven will be marked as Ezekiel ends his prophecy. So much of Ezekiel is in this part of Revelation, by the way. The new heaven will be marked by Ezekiel's last line. The Lord is there. Nearness to God. Um, that he will be our God. And we will be his people, and the dwelling place now of God is with us. The new heaven will be marked by nearness and not separateness. There will be no names. There will be no demarcations. Nothing that implies any sort of separateness <coughs> whatsoever. You know, 35213, 35126, you know, all that stuff. There is no name. There is no Nomos, denomination. There is no law in the new heaven. It's really, and 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 for those of us like me, you know, that's that's where the streets have no name. That's where that song just soars. But that's my own sort of place. So, so yeah, Claude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Vivid image. Right. And it implies to me that it is our actions on which judgment is based. Sure, sure. As opposed to what we know, which our actions, our deeds, what we do is not, uh, we better hope. We better hope, yeah. So. It's not the cause and the basis for judgment. Sure, sure. Right. That's right. I don't want to be a goat. So, nope. Um, uh, 
Would you read, do you have the Bible in front of you? Would you read the last verse, the one about the judgment where? Of the twentieth, yeah, where the, the one you're talking about, where it implies the judgment by works. Right, right, right. He was thrown in the lake of fire. Yep. So the, the Bible is clear um, that what we do matters. Um, even here buried amidst the, uh, the fantastic news of the new heaven and the new earth are two strict and stern warnings. Um, uh, but for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, you know, with the exception of you know, overt sorcery, you know, that's a pretty good description of me. Um, you know, what are we going to do? And you've got to uh, line up with the... This is where theology is not an idea, um, but it's a, it's a reality. Um, where theology, uh, theologos, the Word of God, um, which is living and active, actually begins to do something to us. And that word hits me, this is just sort of restatement, but it's great, um, restatement where it hits me in two ways. It hits me as the word which, which kills me, which shakes me to my core, which, which uh, defines me, which does denominate me, which breaks me down and says, this is you, 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 detestable, liar, faithless, all those. And that word levels me. And all that is recorded here in this book. Um, the book of death. That's my phrase, not the Bible's phrase. Um, our only hope is that the second Theologos, the second word of God, where it appears over here, on no merit of my own, uh, on no place of my own, but which proceeds only from the author of all life and all things, where everything is emanating out, where the little babies, I don't know if you can see that very well, um, let's see if I can do this. I've got an idea I can chase. Where the uh, small little places here, in a certain sense, our Christian growth, as it were. Um, we get, I heard this recently, so I didn't make this up. It's a fantastic way of illustrating it. We have com completely wrong when we think of how am I developing and maturing as a Christian. Um, because we put that idea over there with human development, like where I'm growing up and becoming an adult. What marks adulthood? Autonomy, independence, um, a greater ability to, uh, uh, to receive things and figure them out on my own, to be able to live uh, and meet life on life's terms. And that is not a biblical description of maturity. If anything, it's the opposite where sanctification, if you want to call it that, is not growing up but growing down. It's becoming like a little child. Let the little children 
come unto me, where we become not marked by autonomy, which literally means autonomos, a law unto ourselves, able to sort of do things independently and on our own well, but to a position of dependence, where we're 100% dependent upon knowing as the law defines me, as the word of God defines me, in what I have done, for the dead shall be judged by what I have been, what I have done, unless your name is written in the book of life. And the only reason it's written in the book of life is left to the wisdom and to the will of God alone. Um, there is no merit on my own. I didn't start it. I didn't finish it. There's no part of me in the middle. I didn't do anything to sort of grow up, as it were, and find my name written over in that book on this side. Um, I had to grow down and find myself in a complete position of, of, uh, of receiver and hearer and dependent. And then it's just, it's just gratitude. It's just grace to say, like, my, my name is written in the book of life. That on top, before it is done, was the word, it is finished. Christ's last word on the cross. And that word says, it is finished. Now, Gil Cracky's uh, deeds have been tetelestied. That's what that word is. Have been paid. It's, it's a word that would be very familiar in the commercial language of Aramaic. I know it's kind of geeky to hear all that, but oh well. The same way that we have a stamp that says, you know, paid. And we just pass it on, and it happens a thousand times a day in your business. They had a thing, tetelestied paid. It was done. That's the word. It is paid. It is done. Now the Lord is free. He's the only one who's free to write my name in the book of life. So that do you get that from that one verse in, in Revelation? You don't. The counsel of God in his word, that's doing theology, the theologos, the word of God, uh, that's how we get to that place. It's a great pickup quad. It's, it's the one. And the division of the sheep and the goats, the the wicked, as they're sometimes called, and the just. Um, the, uh, the difference between the wicked and the just, the word of God. His word, completely on his own. He's the only one who's free. You know, the according to what he's done, there's a substitution. That's right. And so that's what he's done. That our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So again, it's Paul. So that when he sees... Uh, what Gil Cracky has done, he looks down, as it were, and sees what Christ has done, and it is finished. Because um, my life is hidden in Christ with God, and so in that sense, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, better, I who live in Christ. So all that's very much at play as we're coming right to the end of the book. Yeah? You know what Christ is talking about? He's the lamp and the light. On the left side of the picture, on Jesus. Yeah, very much. Him. Yeah. All the people are white because they're facing him. They're going out yep. there, reflecting his image, and that's what I think of like how we're made in the image of God. Yep. And so, and the ones on the right side are dark and they're facing away from him, or they're going down. And they're not reflecting the love and the light that yep. he. You know, just, you know, Completely right. Are we in both books? Are we in both books? That's a good question. Um, no. Um, no. The names written in the book of life uh, uh, are hidden. H who can open the, the scroll? 
we hear in Revelation 5, I think it is. And there's only one worthy, and it came out as a real surprise because it was a lamb who appeared as if it had been slain. Um, uh, and the names in that scroll, as opposed to the to the uh, to the other book, uh, two different. Who does appear in that other book? I don't know. Um, population of the wicked and the just. Uh, not for us to know. I know it's frustrating to a lot of us. But. The role of confession and sin, the active role that we have to play, which we do every Sunday. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, the confession of sin, to that's just to uh, to make a statement with another. You know, I love to play with words. Confess. Uh, just, well, there's a word I used earlier, apprehend. It allows me to apprehend that which is already known. By whom? By Almighty God, and to, all, and to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Uh, he already knows all that. And so now I am just making a statement along with him, bringing this into my awareness, as it were, my apprehension of wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this? Because this is my just desert is the book of, 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 of damnation. Uh, and so confession brings me to that. So now the second word of God, Theologos, uh, the word of the gospel, the word of it is finished and it is done. Behold, I am making all things new, uh, including your name is now written in the book of life and not in the book of death. Um, period. So confession brings me to an awareness of my my need, who I am, living in the already and the not yet, in this present darkness, in this evil position of hearer, receiver, dependent, growing down rather than growing up. That is all confession. That's, that's exactly, it's a great, nice way to put it in there, David. I appreciate it. That's um, exactly why we do that. That's the answer to people saying, well, I, mean, I had meant so down. They're always talking about sin and always doing confession every single week. You know, why do y'all do that? Some churches don't, even Episcopal churches. It's like, well, because it puts us in a position of right relationship with God. You know, I am the sinning human, and he is the justifying God. The only thing that bridges that gap is the one who is seated at the throne, from whom everything proceeds. What a shift. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There is no health in me. Um, you know, my bones are wicked and they're rotting, the Psalms would say. Um, uh, that is a proper definition. This is where the streets do have a name. Um, you know, we're not yet in the new heaven. Um, let me read uh, you know, several different parts of a... Uh, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. This is the Narnia, last of the Narnia series. And I have to confess, I haven't seen any. I don't think I've even seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The new ones, you know. But I do hope they keep going, just so I can see this one. This is my favorite book. It's the last one of the seven in, uh, in C.S. Lewis's um, uh, series. And let's see. Uh, Narnia has just had its last battle. Um, so Tash, who is the Satan kind of evil figure, has just been bound and thrown into, uh, kind of thrown away. You know, there's a lot more to that. But um, uh, 
now it's picking up where all the children and some of the adults and all of, a lot of the other Narnians, if you know any part of the story, are now um, uh, in the new heaven and the new earth, but they don't know it yet, and they're coming to that realization. So I'm going to skip around and read several parts of the, uh, the last 15, 20 pages or so. Uh, uh, it'll probably take about five minutes. It'll probably go to the end of the class, and we can interact with this, with William Blake, with Revelation 21, um, where the streets have no name, wherever else we want to go. So, so I know it's hard to hear, but hopefully children's, a children's story will be a little, little easier to listen to a, long, a longer reading. Um, one of the original children that went in was named Lucy, and she's the first one to start. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, and they look farther away than I remembered. And they're more, more, oh, I don't know. She's talking about all the trees and the grass and everything else, how they just, they're so different, but yet so familiar. And then, uh, and then the Lord Diggory said softly, they're more like the real thing. And then suddenly Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up in the air and circled round and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We're only beginning now to see where we are. From up here, I have seen it all. Edensmuir, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, Care Paravel, still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter, for Aslan told us, uh, older ones, that we should never return to Narnia, and yet here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and when we all saw it, and we all saw it destroyed and the sun put out. It's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of, but that was not the real Narnia. That had been the beginning of an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as in our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You do not need to mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all of the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as a waking life is from a dream. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia is like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground he neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Bree hee hee, come farther up, come higher in. He shook his mane and sprang forward into a great gallop, a unicorn's gallop which, in our world, would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now... A most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run, and they found to their astonishment that they could keep up with him. Not only the dogs and the, hum uh, and the humans, but even fat little Puzzle, a donkey, and short little Poggin the dwarf. The air flew in their faces as if they were driving fast in a car without a windscreen. The country flew past as if they were seeing it from the windows in an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but not one got hot or tired or out of breath. This is, of course, the illusion in Isaiah. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. Now, skipping just a little bit, 
This is absolutely crazy, said Eustace to Edmund. I know, and yet, said Edmund. Isn't it wonderful, said Lucy. Have you noticed that one can't feel afraid, even if it wants to? Try it. By Jove, one can't, said Eustace, after he tried. All fear will be removed. And then it moves over. Um... About half hour later, or it might have been half a hundred years later, for time there is not like time here. Lucy stood with her dear friend, her oldest Narnian friend, the fawn Tumnus, looking down over the wall of that garden and seeing all Narnia spread out below. But when you looked down and found that this hill was much higher than you had thought, it sank down with shining cliffs thousands of feet below them, and the trees in that lower world looked no bigger than grains of screen salt. But then she looked inward again, and stood with her back to the wall, and looked at the garden. I see, she said at last thoughtfully, I see now. The garden is like the stable. It is far bigger inside than it is outside. Of course, daughter of Eve, said the fawn, the further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. And elsewhere he says there was a manger in our world once the same way where the inside is bigger than the outside. John Donne's statement about um, the incarnation, that immensity is cloistered in thy dear womb, Mary. Just think about that. And Lucy looked hard at the garden and saw that it really was not a garden at all, but a whole world with its own rivers and woods and sea and mountains. And But, but they were not strange. She knew them all. I see, she said, this is still Narnia, and more real and more beautiful than the Narnia down below just as it was more real and more beautiful than Narnia outside the stable door. I see world within world, Narnia within Narnia. Yes, said Mr. Tumnus, like an onion, except that as you continue to go in, each circle is larger than the last. And then the book closes, um, uh, where Aslan comes out uh, and then the, uh, the last parts. You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be, says Aslan. And Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, as you have sent us back to our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not yet guessed? Their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose up within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you, uh, as you used to be called, as you used to, your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after, after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. For this is just the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning the chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. So Talcius Lewis attempted to describe, uh, using the medium of fiction, and children's fiction at that, a way in a really profound way, using simplicity in all of its profundity, some of what is approached here in Revelation 21 and what it could mean that there is in truth 
a new heaven and a new earth that awaits each one of us, where there will be a place where there is now an, an impossibility to feel fear or want or need, even if one tries. Um, that it's the that the the law, so to speak, uh, is now a law of love, and where everything is different, um, and that the the great line Aslan now in saying that begins to take a new appearance, a new uh, a new apprehension to us, where we know him, as he makes the statement, "Behold, now my dwelling is with you." And the new heaven shall be marked by nearness and not separateness. So with that, comments, thoughts? It's a meandering part, but it's a good way to work this part of the scripture, I think, is to, uh, to move around. Let me pray. Lord, correct me where I am wrong. And strengthen your word so that it may stand uh, in our minds and, and, uh, and do its work on us. Give us a hunger for this uh, new heaven, this new earth, where our citizenship uh, we know is there. Give us um, uh, a gracious assurance, Lord, of, of our names being written in your book of life. And that we have no fear uh, and yet at the same time, Lord, as we are stuck in this world, uh, allow your word to come to us and draw us ever to a position of dependence and need of you. Um, allow your word, um, your two words, in fact, to do their work. Um, I beg this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.